Welcome to the Servants of Grace podcast hosted by Dave Jenkins. Our podcast exists to provide trustworthy expository messages through the Bible and faithful answers to your theology questions. Now for today's episode, let's join our host, Dave Jenkins. Well, welcome back to the Servants of Grace podcast. My name is Dave and I'm the host for this show. And on today's episode, we're going to continue our series to the book of Psalms, looking today at Psalms 69, 1 through 18, and the cry of the weary soul. Would you please join me now in prayer? Heavenly Father, we thank you that your word is true. And not only is it true, but it it speaks true things to us. Because you are a God that is full of grace and full of truth, you have spoken finally and fully in and through your word, which testifies so clearly of of your son, Jesus. And so, Lord, as we look now at this great psalm before us, we are going to be reminded, we're going to be instructed, we're going to be encouraged, we're even perhaps going to be challenged, that to, to know you, is to know you in every aspect of our lives, on our darkest days, on our best days. You are, you remain the same. You are good and perfect and holy and just and altogether righteous. And so, Lord, we thank you for your revealed character in your word. Help us now as we look at this text to not only be reminded not only to be instructed, but to take home the truth that we hear and that we grow in and that, that we're studying today. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, if you have your Bibles, go ahead and open them to Psalm 69. Psalm 69. Today we're going to look at the first 18 verses. Save me, O God, for the waters have come up to my neck. I sink in deep mire where there is no foothold. I have come into deep waters, and the flood sweeps over me. I am weary with my crying out. My throat is parched. My eyes grow dim with waiting for my God. More in number than the hairs of my head are those who hate me without cause. Mighty are those who would destroy me. What I did not steal must I now restore. O oh God, you know my folly. The wrongs I have done are not hidden from you. Let not those who hope in you be put to shame through me, O Lord God of hosts. Let not those who seek you be brought to dishonor through me, O God of Israel. For it is for your sake that I have borne reproach, that dishonor has covered my face. I have become a stranger to my brothers, an alien to my mother's sons. For zeal for your house has consumed me, and the reproaches of those who reproach you have fallen on me. When I have wept and humbled my soul with fasting, it became my reproach. When I made sackcloth my clothing, I became a byword to them. I am the talk of those who sit in the gate, and the drunkards make songs about me. But as for me, my prayer is to you, O Lord. At an acceptable time, O God, in the abundance of your steadfast love, answer me in your saving faithfulness. Deliver me from sinking in the mire. Let me be delivered from my enemies and from the deep waters. Let not the flood sweep over me or the deep swallow me up, or the pit close its mouth over me. Answer me, O Lord, for your steadfast love is good. According to your abundant mercy, turn to me. Hide not your face from your servant. 
for I am in distress. Make haste to answer me. Draw near to my soul. Redeem me. Ransom me because of my enemies. This is the reading of God's holy, precious word. You know, scholars, they debate which psalms should be considered messianic. That is, those who are fulfilled in the person and the work of the Lord Jesus. Probably the best answer is given by Augustine and Martin Luther, who emphasize that all of the psalms are messianic. And there is, in fact, a strong case for this position in many of the psalms of King David, since David was a pattern of his greater descendant, Jesus, as Paul taught in 2 Corinthians 1.20, all the promises of God find their yes in him. Then the wide-ranging prayers and the praise offered in the book of Psalms are all consummated in God's Son, Jesus Christ. Now, some scholars, they disagree with what I just explained, urging that only Psalms that are explicitly quoted in the New Testament as referring to Jesus should be considered messianic. Now, by this standard, Psalm 69 easily qualifies as a messianic psalm. Seven of its verses are quoted in the New Testament, making it the next most quoted psalm after Psalm 22 and Psalm 110. In fact, Psalm 69 relates to Christ, not merely in a general way, but in a specific reference to his atoning for sin. Arno Gabrielin exclaims, what a precious psalm it is. It begins with the cry of the one who bore our sins in his body, who suffered for our sake, and it ends with the glorious result of his atoning work. Let's talk about the hurting man that we see in this psalm. And yet, before we consider uh, Psalm 69 as pertaining to Christ, we need to understand it in its original context, with David praying as one who is greatly distressed because of the persecution he has suffered for championing the cause of the Lord. Beset with opposition, he cries out to God for his help in Psalm 69.1, which says, Save me, O God, for the waters have come up to my neck. These are the words of the one who is overwhelmed by suffering. Psalm 69.2 says, I sink in deep mire where there is no foothold. I have come into deep waters, and the flood sweeps over me. Now, David describes himself as a drowning man or one stuck in constraining mire, crying out at what seems to be the end of his endurance. Christians will sometimes feel this way. They'll they'll face problems for which no solution seems forthcoming. And when we remember what a resolute person David was, it becomes clear that his situation was dire indeed. And yet, for all of his strength, David was still just a man. And therefore, like us, he could reach the end of his rope. David was dismayed, not because he had failed to pray, but rather because his prayers seemed not to make a difference. In Psalm 69.3, he says, I am weary with my crying out, my throat is parched. My eyes grow dim with waiting for my God. Now, this was not an irreverent complaint or an expression of unbelief. David was continuing to pray even as he spoke of his weary and broken spirit. He doubted that he could continue to call on God and was worn out with grief, waiting for God to help. In fact, this is a really important thing to talk about because many Christians, they feel like, you know what, God 
Do you care about me? Do you care about me in the midst of my suffering, in the midst of our trials, in the, in the midst of waiting on you for the things that are happening in our life? Answers, questions, doubts. Where is the Lord? And yet what we see is even in the midst, what we'll see, I should say, is even in the midst of David's crying out to the Lord, we're going to see David trusting in the Lord. Now, the particular cause afflicting David was being surrounded by opponents who maliciously assailed him without a legitimate charge. He says, more in number than the hairs of my head, he cries, are those who hate me without cause. Mighty are those who would destroy me, those who attack me with lies in verse 4. Now, David cannot understand his opposition, and since the enemies assailed him with false charges, he was unable to defend himself from harm. In verse 4, he says, what uh, I did not steal must I now restore, indicating that he was being made to pay for a crime that he did not commit. And throughout history, it has pained Christians to be hated and accused without a just reason. Tradition states that the first Roman persecution arose because the mad Emperor Nero blamed Christians for his own crime of burning down the city. And in addition to their physical sufferings, it must have pained uh, the believers to be unable to defend themselves from such a false charge. In latter persecutions, Christians were labeled atheists because they refused to worship Caesar. Or they were falsely accused of performing perverse rites in the sacraments of baptism and the Lord's Supper. And today Christians face the prospect of being demonized for bigotry or even prosecuted for hate crimes merely for insisting on the Bible's moral and uh, teaching and, and teaching on gender and sexuality. And it's bad enough to be despised, but it especially hurts to be misrepresented and falsely accused. Have you ever been isolated for your faith, perhaps in your family or your workplace, and treated unfairly? Have you further asked God to help you, only to find that the persecution never stopped? Well, if so, David's cry in Psalm 69 may be a help in bringing your grief before the Lord. In fact, in considering how David's cries apply to Jesus, we need only to consult John 12 or John 15:25 where Jesus quotes Psalm 69, 4. Concerning those who were about to take his life, Jesus lamented that he had done only good to them, but added, but the word that is written in their law must be fulfilled. They hated me without cause. Psalm 69 refutes the thought that because of his deity, uh, Jesus' emotions somehow were not touched by the false charges and the hatred inflicted on him. Hebrews 5, 7-9 provides the best commentary on what Jesus actually experienced when it says, In the days of his flesh, Jesus offered up prayers and supplication with loud cries and tears to him who was able to save him from death, and he heard because of his reverence. And although he was a son, he learned obedience through what he suffered, and being made perfect, he became the source of eternal salvation to all those who obey him. Now, these verses teach us that Jesus had to undergo this kind of suffering in order to fit himself for the role of being our Savior. He was not exempt from feeling overwhelmed or from the bitter weariness or the suffering set down by David's pen so long ago. Jesus' perfect obedience to the Father was not offered up in the sense of ease of an armchair or in the context of an idyllic life. To the contrary, Jesus experienced all the bitterness of injustice and the malice that our world had to offer. 
He learned obedience in such a world so as to deliver uh, deliver uh, us from it because he's perfect. He's sinless. That's why he can be our substitute. And the application of David's anguish cry was given by Jesus on the night of his arrest. Instead of being astonished when the world unfairly despises us, Christians should realize that our suffering is part and parcel of being united to Jesus in faith. Jesus himself says this in John 15, 18 through 19, when he says, If the world hates you, know that it has hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love you as its own. But because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. John Calvin applies a lesson from his own experience when he says, Let us therefore learn from this example to prepare ourselves not merely to bear patiently all the losses and troubles, yeah, even death itself, but also shame and reproach if if at any time we're loaded with unfound accusation. Christ himself, the fountain of all all righteousness and holiness, was not exempted from foul calamity. then why should we be dismayed when we meet with a similar trial? What, he, what he's saying there and what David is saying is the Lord is with us. He's always with us. And so whatever trial, whatever difficulty, whatever challenge you're facing today, the Lord sees, the Lord knows. He understands. He is a sympathetic high priest, Hebrews 2 and Hebrews 4 tells us. And this is why we can approach him. Not because we have deserved it or because of our own merit, but solely on the basis of the righteousness of Christ alone. And now what we'll see in the rest of, in in quite a bit of the rest of this psalm is David giving a sanctified lament. And that's because David's hurting cry leads to a sanctifying lament that exposes or unveils his true motives. Since he has already stated that he was hated without cause, it may seem surprising that he proceeds to confess his sin to the Lord in verse 5 of this psalm. When he says, O God, you know my folly. The wrongs I have done are not hidden from you. And here's the proof that David was not self-righteous in his anger. Still, this is not the statement that we would expect for David to make at this time in his life and in this particular chapter. When most of us are wrongly accused, we tend to go on and on about our innocence. And yet, David shows us the true godly attitude here. He has tried to live an upright life. He's grieved by false accusations. He knows that he is really guilty before God. He has even acted in folly. He has not always done what he should have. And so, unburdening his heart to God, he must confess his guilt. He must admit his failings. And rather than making him more prideful, his experience of unjust suffering humbled him all the more. And, and what does that teach us? We need to ask about the way in which we respond. I can tell you that oftentimes, when, when, if I was to put myself in this situation, that would not be my response. And chances are, if you were to put yourself in that, that response, in that situation where David was in, you would your response might not be the same as well be very good as well you might finger point or start accusing that person and and more but what david shows him shows us here as rather than being prideful he humbled himself all the more he admits you don't know the half of it this is this is this is true especially of us as christians you know, um, 
We are saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. It is all a work of God. As Jonah 2.9 says, salvation is of the Lord. And rather than we, we believe that perhaps in our heads, but in, if we put it into practice, here's what it looks like. When unjustly accused, instead of getting defensive, we remember we were once like them. We were once an enemy of God. We were under the wrath of God. And what we really deserve is to still be and remain under the wrath of God apart from Christ. And yet it is good news here because God has not left us alone. Instead, he came into our time, into our space. He, was, he, he bore our sins at just the right time, Romans 5 says. And he paid the penalty for us in our place and for our sin. He was buried and he rose again. That's good news. The good news isn't only that God has saved us from our sin, but that he has given us a new life, a life that we never deserved and that is all by grace. And, and what this does is in the midst of when we're falsely accused, when we're going through difficult times and challenging situations, what this does is it should humble us. It should get us to realize the worst that was ever done to us. It was signed and it was sealed and it's delivered. The very worst that can happen is somebody can take my life. Now, that doesn't mean that we don't care about what people have to say about us, but it, it does free us from the fear of man. Instead, to fear the Lord and to humbly evaluate, is, is what this person saying true about me? If it's true, I need to admit it. I need to confess. If, if it's not true, then I can just politely tell them that's not true about me. And by the way, this is why Proverbs eleven fourteen and other passages have so much to say to us about godly wisdom and godly counsel and uh, having other people to walk alongside of us. Now, to back to Psalm 69. The scholars wrestle with how such confession that David is giving here, confession of sin, could be found in a messianic psalm since Jesus was perfectly wise and always without sin. And some commentators argue that Jesus is talking about his people's sins onto himself, or that he is rhetorically pointing out that God knows that he has not in fact sinned. It is better, however, simply to realize that there are things about David that cannot apply to Christ, and that this verse simply expresses David's own personal contrition. And the main reason that David is concerned about his own mistakes is that he fears the accusation against him may serve to discourage other believers. And so he prays in verse 6 of Psalm 69, let not those who hope in you be put to shame through me, O Lord God of hosts. Let not those who seek you be brought to dishonor through me, O God of Israel. And instead of our fretting over our reputations for our sakes, David shows us that we should be more interested in how our conduct will influence other Christians. This was the Apostle Paul's concern when he wrote to the Ephesians from imprisonment in Rome in Ephesians 3.13. He says, I ask you not to lose heart over what I am suffering for you. Paul was worried that the believers would doubt the promises of God because the great apostle might seem to have been defeated. And instead, Paul urged them uh, to realize that it is the glory and not the shame of a Christian to suffer with Christ. Like David, when we're called on to suffer for the Lord, 
concern for the effect of our conduct on other believers ought to motivate us to speak and even act with godliness and faith, even through tears. Likewise, our prayers for help ought to include petitions that our sufferings would be used by God to encourage the faith who see and observe our conduct. And when it comes to the death of Jesus for our sins in our place, it is especially vital that we not be ashamed of him. Instead, seeking a Savior who seems to wield more victorious power, this was Jesus' warning to John the Baptist when that suffering prophet was tempted to doubt that someone as meek and tormented as Jesus could really be the Savior. Matthew 11.3 says, Are you the one who is to come, or shall we look for another? John inquired. And Jesus replied by pointing out his miracles and his preaching of the gospel. But then looking ahead to the cross, he urged, Blessed is the one who is not offended by me. And the sufferings of Christ are, are as much a proof of his divine authority as his healing miracles. You see, in the midst of his sorrow, David was blessed to claim that his sufferings were caused by his faithful commitment to God. He says this in Psalm 69, 7. For it is your sake that I have borne reproach that dishonor has covered my face. Similar words should comfort and even encourage everyone who suffers persecution for faith in Christ. In Philippians 1.29, Paul wrote, For it has been granted to you that for the sake of Christ, you should not only believe in him, but also suffer for his sake. He exclaimed in Philippians 3.7-10, Whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection, and may share his sufferings, becoming like him in his death. Paul was not a morbid spirit who sought torment for its own sake, but only endured it for Christ's sake. 2 Corinthians 12.10 says, For the sake of Christ, then, I am content with weakness, insults, hardships, persecution, and calamities. For when I am weak, then I am strong. And David, likewise, could accept disgrace if this was a price of his fidelity to the Lord. David's spirit was nearly broken by rejection and criticism from fellow believers. Psalm 69, 8 says, I have become a stranger to my brothers and alien to my mother's sons. We should do our very best to make sure that this does not happen to fellow believers who are suffering public disgrace today for faithfulness to God and his word. And it will often be the case that those most courageously standing on the truth of God will bear the worst public scandal. Today, these include those who refuse to be silent about the legalized murder of unborn children, who do not bow to official pressure to normalize adultery and homosexuality or even transgenderism, or have the fortitude to stand before the mantra of evolutionary theory and proclaim God as the creator of the heavens and the earth in six days. It's hard enough for those of us who remain publicly faithful to Christ in these and similar matters to be mocked and abused by the world, but the scornful betrayal of their fellow believers is a grief almost too uh, grievous to bear. And even when we have differences with one another, whenever fellow believers are re resolutely standing on the word of God before the world, our policy should always be to rally to their aid in every possible way, in prayer, despite their inevitable failings and mistakes, and never curry the world's favor at their expense. Now, let's talk about the next point in our time together, and that is a bitter indictment that we're going to see in Psalm 69.9, where we encounter another statement that is directly applied to Jesus in the New Testament. 
Early in his ministry, Jesus responded in outrage to the shopkeepers who had taken over the temple courts, physically driving them out from God's house of prayer. And instead of praising Jesus for this obviously righteous action, the religious leaders criticized him, and they even began to plot against him. Reflecting on this incident later, the apostles saw this situation as fulfilling Psalm 69.9, which says his disciples remembered it was written, Zeal for your house will consume me in John 2.17. And since Jesus was motivated by a concern for God, the reproach he received indicated his enemies as opponents of God. And David imbibes this same spirit in Psalm 69.9 when he says, For zeal, your house has consumed me, and the reproaches of those who reproach you have fallen on me. And now David's statement concerning his zeal for God's house may indicate that his detractors were opposed to his zealous labors to prepare for the construction of the Lord's uh, temple, which David knew would take place during the reign of his son Solomon. 1 Chronicles 22, 2-5 records these enormous labors and expenditures, and it's easy to see how some might resent the sacrifices that David plans to, the, David's plans required to make them. And now David's further statement in verses 10-11 through 11 of this psalm indicates that it was not merely the construction of the temple, but the religion enshrined there that so annoyed his assailants. When he says, When I wept and humbled my soul with fasting, it became my reproach. When I made sackcloth my clothing, I became a byword to them. You see, the salvation taught in the Bible and ritualized at the temple is not one of self-boasting, but of self-humiliation before the glory of God's holiness, along with a penitent appeal for mercy through the sacrificial blood of Christ alone. And instead of praising God for offering us forgiveness, unbelievers gnash their teeth at the obligation to confess their sins. Instead of rejoicing in the light of Christ, they hate him for showing how dim are their own lamps and for revealing their treasured self-righteousness for the dirty rag that it is. This wicked attitude was precisely the indictment that Jesus laid at the feet of the world that crucified him 2,000 years ago and rejects us today. And John 3.19, Jesus says, This is a judgment that light has come into the world, and people love the darkness rather than the light, because their works were evil. And in light of the world's spiritual rebellion against God, David reminded believers in Psalm 69.12 of the universal public scorn we can expect when he says, I am the talk of those who sit in the gate, and the drunkards make songs about me. And so he presents both the high and the lows of society who have in common their hatred of the godly. Those who sit in the gate, it refers to the chiefs and the elders, just as it might refer to the cultural gatekeepers today, such as the late night talk show hosts and the movie producers who determine the conventional wisdom expressed in the media today. These join in taunting the godly along with the dregs of society who make up drunken and scornful limericks. David's experience shows us that in order to commit ourselves in zeal to the cause of God, we will have to let go of our reputation before the world, remembering that virtually every person greatly used by Christ was mocked by the society in which they served. Now, most importantly, we are to remember Jesus who set aside his own good name for the salvation of his people. And Paul quotes Psalm 69.9 in making this point, in Romans 15:3, which says, For Christ did not please himself, but as it is written, the reproaches of those who reproached you fell on me. Peter likewise urged us 
not to be a willing, uh, not only to be willing to suffer with Christ, but also to endure that when we suffer, it is because of his righteousness and not because of our sin. First Peter two nineteen through twenty one says, "For this is a gracious thing when mindful of God, one endures sorrows while suffering unjustly. For what credits? For what credit is it if, when you sin and are beaten for it, you endure?" But if when you do good and suffer for it, you endure. This is a gracious thing in the sight of God. For to this you have been called, because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example so that you might follow in his footsteps. Now let's talk about a prayer for help. What can believers do when rejected and unfairly mocked for the sake of Christ? The answer is the one provided by David. We can trust in God and rely on him in prayer, even as we lay into his hands the miseries that can barely stand forever any longer but as for me david cries my prayer is to you o lord in verse 13 and once again opening his heart with grief over his afflictions unable to stop his mind from racing ahead to the disaster he anticipates david asks god in verses 14 through 15 deliver me from sinking in the mire let me be delivered from my enemies and and from the deep waters let not the flood sweep over me or the deep swallow me up or the pit close its mouth over me we have noted that jesus felt this same way and took his crushing burdens to his father in prayer in the garden of gethsemane jesus asked whether the cross might somehow be taken away but realizing that salvation could result only from his atoning sufferings he cast himself on god and matthew 26 39 says nevertheless not as i will but as you will and luke reports that an angel was sent by the father to strengthen jesus in his trial in luke 22 43 the past, this pattern of surrender to God's will and reliance on God's secret source of strength has always empowered God's faithful servants. In 1909, on the 400th anniversary of the birth of John Calvin, the civic and the church leaders of Geneva, Switzerland, unveiled a monument to the great pastor and scholar who has served there. Calvin was depicted alongside other key spiritual leaders on, on his age, standing atop the famous Reformation wall. Inscribed on that wall were the Latin words that read, One man with God is always in the majority. The man who wrote these words was John Knox, whose prayer and preaching seemed to single-handedly propel the Scottish Reformation, and whose image joins Calvin's on the Reformation wall. Like uh, David in Psalm 69, Knox was a godly man who had been viciously maligned and misrepresented by his critics, beginning in his own time and continuing to ours. Now, Knox made mistakes, including his famously bitter tract against the female monarchs of England and Scotland, and some of his rhetoric was painfully harsh, and yet Knox was in the majority with God, not because of an oversized ego that assumed that he must always be right, but instead because of a humble faith that cast itself on the Lord. Knox's power came through humble prayers that confessed his weakness and sin, that pleaded with God about his failings and his sufferings, and contended with God to give victory to the gospel in his land. Douglas Bond says this, Beset on every side by powerful enemies who want to silence him or better still take his life, Knox understood that the great troubles often act as goads, causing us to despair in our own power and turn in faith to God's power. And for all the victories that God granted to the gospel, John Knox is not remembered with honor in his own native land. If you inquire for his grave at the church where he so powerfully ministered, St. Giles High Kirk in Edinburgh, you will learn that it was maliciously paved over at a parking space, number 23 in the church parking lot. 
And yet, despite the hatred of the world, John Knox had his reward from the hand of God. Charles Spurgeon wrote, When John Knox went upstairs to plead with God for Scotland, it was the greatest event in Scottish history. Now let's talk about reasons for hope as we wrap up our time here today. As we likewise despair of human power and cast ourselves on God in prayer, David provides three lessons for us to endure in faith. The first reason is the steadfast love and the faithfulness of God that we see in Psalm 69, 13, which says, In the abundance of your steadfast love, answer me in your saving faithfulness. You see, God has pledged himself in Christ to save his church and to give victory to his gospel. Matthew 16, 18 says, I will build my church and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. Moreover, his covenant love rests on believers so that as the prophet Zechariah said in Zechariah 2, 8, he who touches you touches the apple of his eye. And knowing this, in the worst of our afflictions, we may take up Psalm 69 and pray with both David and Jesus. In, verse, in Psalm 69, 16, Answer me, O Lord, for your steadfast love is good. According to your abundant mercy, turn to me. You see, in the midst of challenging times, hurtful situations, difficult people, what we need to be reminded of is we need to be reminded of the love, the love and the care and the beauty and the goodness of God. We need to have our perspective aligned, realigned because what we so often do, if you're anything like me, is you focus so much on your circumstances, on your troubles, on your hurts, and what you forget to do is to do as the writer of Hebrews says, and look to Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith. And that's what Jesus, that's what, I mean, excuse me, this is what David is doing in verse 16 of, of Psalm 69. He's saying, answer me, O Lord, for your steadfast love is good. According to your abundant mercy, turn to me. See, the steadfast love of God is good because God is good. And God's character is good because Titus 1-2 says that God will never lie. God will always act in accordance with his revealed word in the word of God, which points us to the person and the work of Jesus. And the second lesson that this psalm teaches us is despairing Christians may endure while relying on the perfect timing of our all-wise God. Verse 13 of Psalm 69 says, At an acceptable time, O God, as David prays for deliverance. We might be certain that the end of our rope has come, sure that we cannot even manage to continue in prayer. But God knows the true end of our strength and will intervene in our struggles at the ideal time for our ultimate good. You see, waiting on the Lord is hard, isn't it? It's hard because it reminds us that we are finite creatures and God is infinite. He's unchanging. He's immutable. His, his love and his mercy endures forever. His power will sustain us. After all, it's that very power that upholds and sustains the world in which we live. Our third and our greatest hope and prayer is the finished work of Christ as Savior and Redeemer. Having exhausted the penalty of our sins on the cross, Jesus cried out, in John 19:30, it is finished. This was the final ground on which uh, David prayed in verses 17 through 18. Hide not your face from your servant, for I am in distress. Make haste to answer me. Draw near to my soul. Redeem me. Ransom me because of my enemies. That's because Jesus knew the enemies that would destroy a sin, Satan, the world's hatred, and even death itself. And he redeemed us from them all by his blood, thus securing every blessing of the Father for his people. 
None of us can truly claim that we suffer completely without cause or ruefully ask, what I did not steal must I now restore in Psalm 69.4. But Jesus truly did suffer without cause, except the greatest cause of our salvation that strengthened his heart. Jesus alone suffered to restore a breach with God that he had nothing to create, but rather died to reconcile sinners who had alienated themselves from their maker. And we can therefore know that God hears our prayers because the Savior who reigns on the throne above is the Christ who suffered for our sins. And through our trials and our sorrows, the Savior is not destroying us, but is saving us and even strengthening our faith through them. And therefore, in our darkest hour, what seems to be the end of our strength, when the waters seem to be flooding over our heads and our eyes are dreary from waiting on God, we can yet call on the Lord in a faith that endures by believing in Christ. Psalm 69, 18 says, Draw near to my soul, we pray. Redeem me, we cry. And through faith in Christ, the Savior who prayed Psalm 69 for our sake, we can pray it back to God for His. Psalm 69, 16 says, Answer me, O Lord, for your steadfast love is good. According to your abundant mercy, turn to me. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that because of the abundant mercy and goodness of God, and even as Romans 5 tells us, at just the right time, you paid the penalty for us in our place. We were once your enemies. We were once children of wrath, as Paul said in Ephesians 2. And yet, at the right time, you paid the penalty for us. And it's only by grace alone, through faith alone, that we are saved. And we are saved not because we are good, but because you are altogether good. You are altogether righteous. You are altogether perfect and glorious and majestic in splendor and power and might and majesty. And so we thank you, Lord. Even as we look at this psalm, we, we have been reminded If we do indeed belong to you, we are held by you in your capable, sovereign, powerful hands. And we are loved by you because of the perfect, spotless righteousness of Christ alone. And so, Lord, I I do pray, Lord, for those who are outside of the saving grace of Christ. I pray, Lord, that you would irresistibly draw them to yourself, that they might become yours, that we would be bold to share Christ this week with those who don't yet know you, that they might turn to the Lord and yet be saved because of the goodness and the mercy and the kindness and the righteousness of Christ alone. And we thank you, Lord, for your word. We thank you that you've taken it, that we've heard it now. Lord, take this word that we have heard taught to us and increase our faith. Grow us to be more like you. Help us to cry out to you even more as the days are dark and evil and the challenges of life continue to assail us. Help us to take what we've learned today and apply it to our lives now, I pray. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for listening to the Servants of Grace podcast today. If you enjoyed the show, please subscribe, leave a rating on the app, and share our episode with your friends and family. If you'd like to, you can follow us on Instagram at Servants of Grace, on Twitter at Servants of Grace, or by searching Servants of Grace on Facebook. You can also find this podcast on the front page of our website at servantsofgrace.org.